in St. James, and tonight authors Dennis N. Griffin, Eric Miller, and I are going to talk about the importance of checking your facts when writing fiction or nonfiction. We'll also be talking about how much the reader wants to know. Every genre has its own requirement for details and examples. Morgan, Eric, and I primarily write mysteries, or in my case, true crime. But what we discuss holds true for all genres. For example, procedurals like Patricia Wall's books featuring forensic pathologist Kay Scarpetta depend upon well-researched, accurate details. As a coroner, she certainly isn't going to look at a contusion and say, hmm, it looks like one of those bumpy thingies. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly true that the same thing holds true for other genres. You know, when you're writing nonfiction, it's really important to use the correct terminology and at least have a little knowledge of the topic so that you can sound professional. Um, one really good example is a fact that most writers don't even check out. Uh, in anything that deals with a shooting murder, it's often said that the distinctive smell of cordite filled the air. I'm sure anyone listening has read that somewhere or heard it on a TV show. Well, I heard a speaker say that that was actually erroneous information. And, of course, as a mystery writer, my curiosity was aroused. So I did some web surfing. Well, what I discovered is that cordite has not been used for many years. And the only way there'd be a smell of cordite in the air is if the bullets were old. And many gun enthusiasts would know this, so you know they might be reading that or listening to it in a um, live broadcast or, or movie and say, ha, huh, they must have been using old bullets, or that's impossible. Eric, what do you think? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I know I've read... Um, books that, that mention the smell of cordite in the air, and uh, I remember you telling me once that you found an article written, what, back in 2005, 2006, posted on a website called Shootin' Shack, and the surprising <laughs> thing is that I've, that I've seen this uh, cordite error written in books even by, you know, what's called A-list actors, um, or even plots in the present day, you know, of course, if if maybe you're writing a, uh, a temporal piece or, you know, a time-setting piece, then using the correct lingo is for the era is important. But if it's set in the present day, um, you really want to stay true to your facts. But then as a former investigator, have, have you run into to, to this Cordite legend? As a matter of fact, I have. And a lot of ammonia, along with other chemicals, was used when cordite was the propellant. That gave it that strong, unpleasant, but uh, certainly identifiable smell when the cartridge was fired. In the modern-day manufacturing, however, a totally different propellant is used, and the smell bears no similarity to the old cordite. All right. Well, so Morgan found some um, accurate information from one source, but how, how much can an author rely on just one source? Even, even in today's era of, of the Internet and everything, there's a lot of unsupported information out there on the web now, isn't there? Well, in, in my opinion, the web can be your best friend for research, and it can also be your worst enemy because of the unreliable, unsourced, unre unverified information. 
the good news that there's so much out there, both good and bad. An acceptable way to do your research is to check several sites to look for a pattern. And also check uh, reader comments, uh, see if they've been made by people who either dispute the post or seem to know what they're talking about. And and before I move to Morgan, I just want to say that I I never uh, owned a computer till I started writing. Of course, that was many years ago. <laughs> uh, but uh, the the web just awed me. And and I, for some reason, when I first started doing the surfing bit thought everything was accurate. I mean, I thought, man, these are probably all scholars and stuff that post this, post this information, and it's, it's, and it's all gold. Well, I found out because I made an error, and, um, and and I took something as solid without double-checking it, and that turned out to be a mistake. It, it didn't uh, kill my project, but I, I had to do a substantial uh, turnaround and, and go back, and uh, when, it, when, I, when I realized my mistake... And go back and, and verify the information, come up with the correct information. So, it's um, it it it's an excellent source if used properly. It can also be uh, a minefield if you don't check and double check and make sure you're getting information off a good, reliable site. Morgan. Yeah, you know, that's that's really true. And, Denny, just to that, one of the things, you know, that always holds true, and it's kind of good for us as authors, is that people believe what they see in writing. And, unfortunately, if what they see in writing is wrong and they haven't researched it, they're still going to believe it was right. So, you know, technical information is one thing. But then we have, as authors, we have the situation where we have to research locations and types of businesses, standard lingo for an occupation, food indigenous to a region. And, you know, the list just goes on and on. And there are so many minefields just waiting for the author to step into them. I mean, you get something wrong, something knows it, somebody knows about it, and boom, it blows up in your face when you see these nasty comments on Amazon. And, you know, as far as researching locations, it's really great if you can find someone who's actually been there if you haven't actually been there. And you can get their feedback in addition to reading travel articles and commentary <clears throat> and even looking at photos. Uh, photos are wonderful, you know, but... Who knows when they were taken if you don't know if they're recent or if they were photos from another era. And um, another great resource for the feeling of a place are watching TV shows like Rick Steves. Um, He's made a career out of doing travel shows all over the world. And, you know, it's not like somebody on a tour bus looking at Native in in their natural habitat. Uh, he actually goes into out-of-the-way locations. He talks to the people. I've heard Rick Steves lecture, and he can really fill in a lot of flavor about an area. And he also has books that are written the same way that he does his TV show with lots of reality. So, you know, those are things that are really important to get those details right because if you use the wrong language, if you put something in a wrong location or give it the wrong atmosphere and feeling of what it actually has. If you have people eating food that they'd never eat in a certain place, I mean, there are just so many things where fact-checking is really, really important. 
You know, what I what I found when I do true crime is I'm generally writing story for another person, a person who's actually I'm telling their story. And a lot of the people I work with they they remember certain things but they're not quite sure of a name or the spelling of a name or they're not sure of a date. They they can put it in a ballpark but they're not really they can't pin down a specific date or time. And sometimes the location, they, they know the city, obviously, they don't, they can't remember if it was uh, the such-and-such such lounge or the such-and-such such club. So uh, what, I've, what I do in those cases, I will get potential names of a, of a location, such as a business, and I will research to find out if, if both of them or all three of them, depending on how many names they give me, exist, if so, where they were located, and what years they're in operation, uh, make sure they were in operation during the years that we're talking about. And if I can uh, get back to, to my uh, to my part, writing partner, I will then say, okay, here's what I've come up with. This is the place, this is the name, this was the location, and they opened their doors in such and such a year. Are you confident this is the place we're talking about? Uh, and if there's still any doubt... I will either not use a name, if the name isn't necessary to advance the story. I would rather leave the name out than open myself and my uh, my co-author up to a lot of criticism. And it, <clears throat> it's not just the criticism for that one issue, but when readers find an error, then they question your whole book. Everything then is, well, I wonder if this is right. You know, he screwed up on this one. I wonder if this is true. So uh, if, I, if I determine that I can't positively with certainty verify that my information is correct, I will not use it. Or if it's something that's necessary to advance the story, I will inform the reader that there are conflicting accounts for that incident and they are such and such and such and such, and I let the reader make up their own mind which one they want to believe. I, I don't try to convince them of something that I'm not sure of. So, uh, But again, minefields, as Morgan said, these are minefields that are out there, and if you're not careful, uh, you're going to step on one of them. Yeah, that's so true, Denny. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about the book that we co-authored that didn't get published under our names that had a lot of mm -hmm. conflicts like that. And, oh, my God, yes. we spent hours and hours and hours justifying information, correcting information when the person remembered something and then they remembered that that wasn't the correct memory. And then we'd be back in checking and checking and checking. And it, it just took hours of research to put together the manuscript that we did. And I'm sure you remember that fondly, Denny. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm being a little bit facetious today. Um, but, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've caught inconsistencies in other people's um, work. And there were two that particularly came to mind while you were talking. And um, I've, I've actually mentioned them in other broadcasts and in articles because they stuck with me so much because they were so off base. And, of course, the larger majority of your readers won't have firsthand knowledge, so they probably don't even know that you goofed. 
But that's no justification for slacking off on accuracy because you have to think about that other percentage who will catch you in misinformation. And like you said, Denny, that affects your credibility as an author. It affects how people believe what you write, even if it's fiction, and how your book will be mentioned to others. And, I mean, let's face it, we all rely on word of mouth to tell people about us as authors and to talk about our books. And you sure as heck don't want them saying, oh, man, that book was such a mess. You wouldn't believe what they came up with. So... (laughs) You know, I I mean, I've done that, but as an author, I extend courtesy to other authors, and if I talk about some of these instances, I don't mention their name or the name of their book. Morgan, do you have any other, um, like, sort of the Cordite instance where uh, you caught something because you just knew from experience that it was way wrong? Yeah, there was one that is, it falls into that category I was just talking about, where it is so off-base, and I have done the author the courtesy of not, you know, taking a love shot at her or the book, but, um, oh, I guess it was a couple of years ago. I read a book, or actually I listened to it in audiobook first, and then I bought a used print copy just to make sure that I wasn't misinterpreting what the audiobook said. Man, I wasn't. Um, This book took place during the High Point North Carolina Furniture Show. And High Point Market Week is held twice a year, and it's one of the biggest trade shows in the industry. Everyone in the region and actually in the United States knows about it. And um, I was in the interior design business for about 20 years I never went to the high point market, but I did go to many exclusively open to the trade marts in other cities, and they're all somewhat similar. Uh, Merchandise Mart in Chicago is probably the largest, Um, but the entire premise and the plot were so off base. I was listening to this thing, and I mean, I was having a hard time not laughing because, first of all, the author had manufacturing facilities, extensive manufacturing facilities in a building that's strictly showrooms. There is no manufacturing space. Then she had a judge pro tem from a neighboring city breeze into town for a one-week temporary assignment, naturally right during market week. And the hotels are sold out as much as a year in advance. It's next to impossible to get a hotel room at High Point during furniture market week. So to me, it was unthinkable that a local judge wouldn't know about that situation. I mean, it's, it supports a lot of business in High Point because the people who come to market, you know, bring lots of money into the area, and everybody knows that the town is really up to its neck during market week. So this judge who comes in, she doesn't think she's going to have any problem booking a room when she arrives, and, of course, she finds out that she can't find a room, and she goes to a restaurant, and she hooks up with this whack job that she meets in the restaurant, And this woman offers to get her into the mart so she could get free food. Now, this is a judge, okay? (laughs) She's she's going with this whack job to the mart to get free food. And she's supposedly a savvy woman who finally winds up sleeping on the couch of this whack job's friend. And then it got more bizarre from there. And anyone in the industry who read or heard this book would have known just how silly the entire premise was. Hmm. But it didn't end there. The crowning glory was that it went off on this tangent that had absolutely nothing to do with the plot, 
And it, it went on for a couple of chapters, and it was about a dog peeing on a rug and how this uh, rug cleaner <laughs> couldn't get the spot out. And, you know, you're thinking, oh, there must be some clue in there This is because this was a murder mystery. There must uh-huh. be a clue. But then all of a sudden that chapter ends, and it's never mentioned again, and it had absolutely nothing to do with the story. So <laughs> then finally at the end, the villain is revealed, but it's a character that comes in out of the blue. There's never even been a slight hint that something like that was going to happen or that that character existed until the last chapter of the book. Well, needless to say, if I was reviewing it, that would have been a one star. <laughs> well, I had a, a, a book it was a, that I read. It's a, a nonfiction book, and it was about... Uh, one of my areas of interest, which is the organized crime uh, history of Las Vegas. And one of the subjects I've written about uh, in a couple of books is named Tony Scalatro, who was the Chicago Outfits enforcer in Las Vegas, sent to Las Vegas. And if anybody's ever seen the movie Casino, Joe Pesci played a character based on Tony. At any rate, I was reading this uh, this book, and he only had the author only had I think a couple of chapters that actually dealt with with the Chicago outfit and their role in Las Vegas. So I I did not read the whole book, I, but I concentrated on those chapters that were especially of interest to me. And one of the uh, in one of the chapters, the author had Tony. Standing trial in Chicago for what was known as the Bertha's burglary case, um, and that he was found not guilty, and that he was murdered while waiting awaiting retrial. Now, people who are up to speed in the criminal justice system, the court systems, and so forth would know immediately that if you are found not guilty, that's the end, game, set, match. There's no retrial. You're found not guilty, and you're like O.J. Simpson with the the criminal murder case, so you you walk free. Um, And the trial that the author was referring to ended in a hung jury, which is entirely different than a... a, uh, uh, an acquittal. The second thing was it took place in Las Vegas, not Chicago. <laughs> and uh, now I, my feeling is, is that an author, people are going to be spending their hard-earned money, hopefully, to buy my books. And I think I feel that I owe them, owe the readers, my best effort. Now, it's not to say I never make a mistake. It's not to say every book I write, uh, you, you can't find a typo in it or that type of thing. But I, I, I would be very, very embarrassed if anyone read one of my books and found that type of error in it. Uh, I, would, I probably would never write again. I would be so embarrassed. So, um, <laughs> oh, you yet, can't yet do that, Penny. Do I it. need you to write with me. <laughs> But it's really something, and and I, like I say, it offended me and and made me feel bad as an author because I, I'm thinking, how can anyone 
you know, be so lackadaisical or lax on their research and and that's the kind of stuff you can look up the different you know, a hung jury versus acquittal. If you don't know it, you can find it easy enough. That's not rocket science for that. So uh, that 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 type of thing, that's one of the worst that particular book was one of the worst examples and I I am not going to divulge the the name of the book or the author, but uh it's a book that actually does quite well. And uh, you know it's it's amazing. How about you, Eric? Have you what do you see in the way of this type of inconsistency business? Well, I I think it's um, real genre specific. I mean, if, you know, like all of us are writing in the in the in the mystery and true crime arena, our fans are going to dissect what we write, and they want what we write to be. Realistic, and I, I think that that applies more in that mystery and, and certainly true, true crime genre than it does science fiction or fantasy. Some of the uh, benefits you have of writing either those journal those genres is that you can kind of make up your own science. You know, the Earth can spin counterclockwise instead of clockwise. You know, you can do all kinds of things. But when you're writing in modern day or or certainly in the mystery and thriller genre, or uh, military um, genre, or, or international espionage, the fact or, or what or history, what, yeah, or history, yeah, well, yeah, that's a great point. Um, I know when I was working on my first book, the metaphysics of nudity, it was a, a road trip comedy. Um, about three people driving from L.A. to New York. And I had driven from the East Coast to the West Coast like several times by that time, four times, but I had never done it from California back to New York. So I literally got out my giant Rand McNally road atlas and, and mapped page by page to go back to so I'd know where the stops were along the route of my characters. And a lot of the comments that I got on that book was, oh, I felt like I was right there in the car with them, and, oh, I've been to that place. I know it's exactly like that. And even though it was a comedy, people really identified with the factual accuracy of the the journey. So with all that said, and we could probably move ahead without more stories. We could probably go on all night about that. Let's get to the question of how much does the reader really want to know? Well, you know, I've got to jump on with just one quick more thing, Eric. Sorry about that. You know me, I run off at the mouse. Um, I wrote a book called Confessions of a Cougar, and I was the cougar. And it took place during three wonderful weeks in England. And there was one critique, one bad review on Amazon that said, obviously the author has never been to England and never been to any of these places. And I have been to England multiple times. I was very, very careful about every single place that I mentioned. I went online and checked it and got all the history on it and made sure I was being accurate because this has happened a while back. And so it really surprised me that this person, 
you know, made that comment, and then several others joined in and said, oh, that just sounds like sour grapes. So anyway, <laughs> I'm going to take the first shot at how much does the reader want to know. And, you know, cozy mystery genre is a good one to go with, because for the most part, people who read cozies really don't care much about technical details. I mean, consider how detailed Kate Scarpetta becomes in her, you know, in the Cromwell books in explaining the various details of pathology and how much it figures into her character as a coroner. Well, for a cozy reader, a very brief generic explanation would certainly suffice. But for Patricia Cornwell's fans, medical thrillers, the reader expects, no, I think they actually demand some pretty explicit and accurate details. You know, given blocks of highly detailed technical information like that, the cozy reader would probably find the book somewhat boring, and wh- I'm going to be a poet, and wind up snoring unless uh, they like all kinds of genres. And without the detailed information, the book wouldn't sell well to the medical thriller reader. Right. Uh, I think that uh, is a very good illustration of what Morgan is saying. Let's assume a wealthy guy is a bomb expert and is a consultant to the police department. They call him in in instances of bomb threats, and in this book, he's been called to the scene. The guy hops in his bright yellow Ferrari and speeds to the scene to offer his expertise. Now, does the average reader want to know every mechanical detail and technical spec for the sports car? Engine, wheel size, maximum speed, torque, even some stuff about Enzo Ferrari? Well, a car aficionado might be very interested in all that. But for someone who's reading this book because of the mystery thriller aspect, what they're probably going to be primarily concerned with is that the guy has a fast Ferrari and arrives there in record time. So the real focus, I believe, should be on his experience and expertise as a bomb expert and perhaps how this rich guy began working with the police department and if there's uh, some background on how that association developed. Well, that brings up a good point because we always have to be aware that we we have to to propel our narrative forward, and we don't want to get bogged down with a bunch of details. And getting too many facts into the story can actually slow down your narrative and really... um, you know, turn turn your thriller novel into, you know, a, a history lesson or a, or a, a car <laughs> lesson or a gun show lesson. You know, so that's that's the real dance. That's that's the art of mixing fact and fiction and, and keeping a strong narrative going. So let's take a minute and, and sort of sum up what we've been discussing. What what I'm hearing is that uh, you're we're all saying make sure that your information is as accurate as possible. Talk to people. Um, do your research if your knowledge is about location. Um, do your lingo research, your research on technology. So and, and everything else so that, that the facts that you are presenting are not just from your own experience. Then once you have all that information, I guess, sort of to use a cliche, separate the wheat from the shaft and use the type of details that readers of your genre are going to expect. But again, be aware 
your primary goal as as a writer and an entertainer and a storyteller is to keep your narrative moving. Uh, anybody else have any comments? Well, I'd say you you probably got that just about summed up into one little paragraph, Eric, where Denny and I could go on all night with stories about both of the points we're discussing. But you being a good editor, I think, probably summed it up into just a couple of sentences. And um, I, I, I'd say, too, you know, that novice writers aren't the only one who make these faux pas. In fact, I've seen them from authors we respect who have a multitude of books in print. Although I must say it's more of a rarity for a seasoned author to make a lot of these mistakes, but it's not an exception. There are ones that just go on and on and have the facts wrong as well. That's right. That's very true, and if I might offer a little a bit of advice, I think you should match the amount of detail to the general profile of your reader. So even if you knew very little about a particular thing, with time spent doing research, qualifying your research, you can sound very knowledgeable. Just hope you won't be asked detailed questions if you're doing a personal presentation, because that can be a little <laughs> tacky. But uh, if that happens, the best answer is, I don't really know, but I sure can find out for you. Uh, sometimes, depending on my audience, if I get um, get, get caught with a question that I can't answer, I I might say, uh, I don't know the answer to that, but don't worry, I'll make something up. But <laughs> it's got to be the right audience <laughs> when I say that. Right. Uh, but anyway, sort of a typical sales 101. Right. Well, both of those are good responses, honest and, and, and a little jovial and, and not trying to argue with somebody that's perhaps trying to pick an argument with you. Um, I'm, I'm sure that both of you agree that one of the prime things to remember is to make sure that your research is accurate. Um, that's what we're saying here, at least to the degree that we can verify. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you can't stress that enough, Eric, because the temptation is to take a shortcut sometimes and not to do as much research as required. Or the thing is, you you become fascinated with a certain set of facts and you think, oh, yeah, everybody's going to really be interested in this. And you go on and on where a good editor would go in with well, in the old days with a red pencil, now with the delete button, and and just cut out the majority of it because there are things that um, the reader doesn't really care about. And, you know, like we said on the, the website for this broadcast, in the old Dragnet show, Joe Friday used to say, the facts, ma'am, only the facts. But when a reader you know, is creating a book or a story, Part of the process is that they do have to check the facts, but they do have to know how many of them to use. So um, that I, I think we've pretty well covered the um, the topic. You know, in my book, Writer's Tricks of the Trade. Of course, we've got the Writer's Tricks of the Trade brand here with the book and the uh, website and the e-zine and now the blog talk radio show, all good sources for writers to get information. But um, what we've been kind of doing is working through the topics in some of the chapters in the books, the ones that we think our listeners will find interesting. And um, 
I, I've gotten a lot of good feedback on it, and so we have many more topics coming up in the future. That's right, and our next show is going to be May 13th when we welcome back author Jean, Jean Moore, um, author of The Boss Always Sits in the Back. And John's going to be kind enough to share with us how he has successfully marketed a self-published book and give us some insights on to why so many authors are now taking this route. Yeah, you know, I, I just, in fact, I just exchanged emails with John today um, as we're developing the format for the show that he's going to be on. And he's done some incredible things. He's a very aggressive marketer, a very personable guy. And um, I think that the things that he's going to share will really be valuable because they're not, as they used to say, book learning. They're what he's actually done that have resulted in successful sales. And it'll be definitely a worthwhile show to listen to. So 